I want to read four verses to you this morning. And I'm reading from, in my language, it's Psalm. In yours, I guess, it's maybe closer to Psalm, but I can't say it. So I'm in Psalm 42, the first two verses. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to read these two verses from a much older translation. As the heart pants for water brooks, so pants my soul for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? In verse 9, My God, why have you forgotten me? In Psalm 43, verse 2, My God, why have you rejected me? As we look at this short piece of Scripture, there are three questions we have to ask at the front end to get our hands on what the Lord is saying. The first question is we need to ask, who is the subject of Psalm 42? Now, if you look at the top of Psalm 42, you'll see there's a heading. It's not an inspired heading. It comes to us down through history. We think it's reliable. The top of that says that this is a mascal written by the sons of Korah for the choir master. We're not sure what a mascal is, so let's just call it a psalm or a hymn or a song. The sons of Korah, Korah was the clan that was designated by the Lord to be responsible for all of the elements of the worship of the tent of meeting. So they were very careful about each element, and especially about the words of the songs that would be used, that they would bring honor to God. Psalm 43 has got no heading. It's got no heading because we believe 42 and 43 belong together. They're one long poem, part A, part B. Now the question is, who is the psalm speaking about? Who's the subject of these words of the psalm? Who, who, is this, who are the sons of Korah? Who are they writing about? Now most commentators agree that it has to be David. You read through 42 and 43... Nowhere is there the name of any person given to us. But the vocabulary, the thoughts, the themes are all Davidic themes and thoughts and vocabulary. In fact, one commentator said he thinks that David dictated this to one of the sons of Korah. So I'm going to take the position that even though David is not named, this is writing about David. And we want to ask then the second question, what occasion? What occasion is the, is the psalmist writing about? What event caused these words to be penned? The psalmist in 42 and 43 is talking about separation. The person is separated from the nation. The person is separated from the worship of the temple. The person is even separated from the person and the friendship of Elohim. Of God Himself. Now, if it was David, there were two times in his life when the psalmist could have been thinking. One was when he was anointed king, when God chose to remove Saul and replace him with David. Saul discovered that, and then David became the focus of Saul's anger and jealousy and bitterness 
And he attempted frequently to kill David. And so David had to run and hide. He had to remove himself from public worship. He had to remove himself from the friendship of his family. And with a band of supporters, try to escape the attacks of Saul. So it could have been that. But I think it was his exile in the northern wilderness. David had committed sin. God said, you know, I just can't have that. I can't have a sinful man leading my people. And so the kingdom will be taken away from you by one of your own heirs who will also take your wives. And so David had to escape and flee again. He crossed the Kidron Brook and went into the wilderness and he hid. Absalom, his son, gathered a new army, new priests, and then he took after his father to attempt to kill him. Now, I believe that that's what the psalmist is referring to because of its proximity to Psalm 51. 51 was written in that wilderness. 51 was David's confession of his sin. So I think this is talking about that exile. Now let's ask the third question. Who is David? Who is David? The anonymity of these two Psalms to me, is very beautiful and very powerful. See, David was, he was the Mashach, Hebrew word. Let me anglicize it. David was the Messiah. The Lord sent Samuel, the great prophet, to the family of Jesse, and he said, I'm going to appoint a new king after my own heart. And so Jesse brought his sons one by one. The Lord kept saying, it looks handsome, looks tall, just like those Alabama players last night. (laughs) Sorry, LSU. But he's not the one. Is there not one more? Well, there's the youngest one. Let's bring him. The Lord said, Samuel, take the horn and pour the anointing oil and proclaim He is Mashach, the new Messiah. So the king was meant to be the Messiah. The king was meant to be the great king, the great leader, the great warrior, the great conqueror. He was meant to lead his people from victory unto victory. Defeat the nations. Bring them into subjection to the kingdom of God. But then Isaiah says, there's more than one way to see this Messiah. Because one day he will come. And he will come to rescue. He will come to deliver. He will come like the new Moses to bring a new exodus. But he will not do it by the sword of steel. But by the sword of the Spirit. It says he comes. And when he comes he will be anointed. Not with oil. The symbol is done. He will not be anointed with oil. No, no. He will be anointed with the Holy Spirit. 
And so Jesus comes to that synagogue in Nazareth. They give him the scroll to read that day. He opens the scroll up. Was it happenstance? He read Isaiah 61. I am anointed by the Spirit to proclaim good news to the captive, to free the prisoner. In a new exodus. And then he said, today, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. I am the new Mashach, the new Messiah, anointed not with oil, but by the Spirit of God. When we read 42 and 43, we are reading about the struggles, the pain, the grief, the suffering, the Pasco of the Son of Man. If you want to know how Jesus felt in those last days, if you want to know what his emotional life was like, you want to know his thoughts, his feelings, his impressions, his struggles, 42 and 43 describe for you what Jesus thought and felt, what his emotions were as he marched to that cross. So today I've got, got two simple points for you. I'll have to spell them because in my Celtic you'll get confused. <laughs> two very simple points. Neil, that's not N-E-I-L, that's N-A-I-L. Neil and Neil. No, 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 don't get confused. K-N-E-E-L. Neil and Neil. I see the back row just became awake on that one. So let's look at the nail. As the heart pants for water brooks. Now heart is the medieval English word for the male deer. The buck. Hind, H-Y-N-D, is the medieval English word for the female deer, the doe. The heart, the hind, are biologically what we call ruminants. That means they have one stomach with four chambers. And as the heart eats, the food goes into the first chamber, digestion begins. And in the second chamber, digestion continues. And then the heart regurgitates. And the food comes back into the first. Then back to the second, to the third, and to the fourth. Now, this heart in 42 pants for water brooks. What has happened? Why is the heart panting for water brooks? You see, this heart has wandered from the herd. This heart has gone off on, on new paths and new discoveries and new ways, looking for new food sources, thinking he can do it, he can find it, and so he deserts the known source of his life. And as he wanders, chamber one becomes empty. Chamber two becomes empty. Chamber three becomes empty. Chamber four becomes empty. And he begins to love on whatever, whatever's left in his body. And as he pants for water brooks, it's because he realizes he is dehydrated. He is on death's door. 
Now, the writer says, as the heart pants for water brooks, so does my soul pant for God. Now, in English language, that's a simile. As that, as this, then that. The writer says, just as when that heart wanders and all his resources of life are gone and he needs water desperately to survive, that's how my soul feels right now. I am not empty. I've used up all of my resources. I have wandered from the source of life. I have been defiant. I have been disobedient. I have trampled his law in the dust. I have abused my position. I have abused another woman. I have abused another man. The husband of that woman. I have chosen the way of sin. And now in this wilderness. I have been emptied. Of everything that I am and everything that I have. My son even has my wives. And I am panting in my darkness, in my loneliness, in my emptiness. I am panting, not for material things. I am panting for the presence, the pleasure, the friendship, the grace, the mercy of the living God. Now, my friends, that's the story of mankind. That's the story of Adam in the, in the garden who was defiant. It's the story of men and women in the days of Noah. It's the story of Moses who in his anger erupted and murdered that Egyptian and had to flee to the Northland for 40 years to be dealt with by God. It's the story of David, his adultery, his lies, his deceiving, his arranging for the murder of one of his very best, closest friends. It's the story of me. The story of you. Some of us just don't realize it yet. But there's more. There's more. See, there was a day when Jesus was teaching, and one of his disciples was a guy called Philip. Philip is not a Hebrew name. It's a Greek name. A Greek disciple following Jesus. And one day a group of Greeks, God-fearing Greeks, came to Philip the Greek and they said, Philip, we would see Jesus. We want to meet Jesus. We want a one-on-one. -on -one. We want a person-to-person -person with Jesus because his teaching is really stirring us. Now, you should say to Neil this morning, Neil, that's great. We can see David and his suffering and his defiance and his disobedience. We can feel the heart panting. But, Neil, we need to see Jesus. We need to see Jesus. Right here. Right here. In Psalm 42. Can we see Jesus? The writer says, my soul thirsts for the living God. 
The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. The Septuagint takes a very straightforward word for thirst. Dipsao. One of my friends this week said, Neil, I haven't been to seminary. You don't need to be to seminary. You're smart. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's suffering the wrath, the judgment, the condemnation of God, the Father, because of my sins. And it's so awful, so awful, the wrath of God, that it cannot be seen by human eye. And so darkness enshrouds that whole place. And in the darkness of the Father removing His presence from the Son and letting the Son feel and experience the awful wrath on my unrighteousness. And He hangs there. And He uses up all of His physical body resources until all the chambers of His being are empty. And finally, he understands, yes, Father, yes, Father, it is completed, the work, salvation secured. And then he cries out, it is finished. Not his life, no. My salvation, your salvation. And then before he gives up his last, John tells us he uttered these words. I thirst. I've used up all of my resources. I've used them all to take the wrath of God for sinners. I've finished the work of redemption. And now I thirst. Was it physical thirst? No. He thirsted like the writer of Psalm 42, I thirst for the living God. When the work was done, when it was all secured, then the son cried out, I thirst, parentheses, for the presence of my father. Now, my friends, that's the nail. That's the nail. Every blow of that hammer that drove those nails through his hands and through his ankles, every blow of that hammer were the blows of my sins and my shame and my guilt. And every darkness that enshrouded him was the darkness that I caused Jesus to suffer and to experience. Are you there? Are you there? What happens when someone realizes the nail? What happens when someone realizes that they're empty? That they have nothing that will carry them into the presence of a holy God? What happens when you've been stripped and humiliated in the Northland? Your crown is gone, your glory is gone, your wealth is gone, your power is gone, your influence is gone. What happens? Then the psalmist says, you cry out, when 
can I meet God? The Hebrew is a bit more dramatic. The Hebrew literally says, for God, for God, for the living one, when can I go? When can I meet his face? Wow. How dare he? How audacious that he should want the presence of the living God. Jacob, the liar, the deceiver, the robber, he ran to the Northlands, became wealthy with wives, possessions. And one day he came to himself and said, you know what? I need to go home. I need to go home. And so he came to the brook. And they'd already been warned, Esau is on his way. And so he sent his possessions group by group across the brook. Give each one of these to Esau. Maybe he will grant me grace. And then he sent his family, his wives and his children across the brook. And he thought, maybe Esau will be merciful. If not to me, at least to them. And then dusk descended. But in that dusk descending, so did the Lord. And all of that night, Jacob wrestled with the Lord. And he wrestled, and he wrestled. And as daybreak approached, the Lord said, let me go. Let me go, Jacob. Jacob said, no, 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 no. You know, years ago, I promised, if you would be with me, I'd give you a 10% of all that you give me. But now I realize 10% is not enough. I don't want the blessings, Lord. I want you. I want you. I want you. And I won't let go until you tell me that I have you, that you are mine and I am yours. And the Lord granted that. And when daybreak arrived and Jacob walked away, he was no longer strong. He was no longer proud. He was bent over. He walked with a limp. His spiritual change was captured by that physical change. He couldn't outrun Esau. He couldn't outrun anybody. He was a changed man physically and spiritually. Even his name was changed. No longer the thief, the stealer, the robber. No, now he is Israel. The man who wrestled with God and who persevered. David in the wilderness in exile. He wrestled with God. He no longer wanted his possessions. He didn't want the honor, the glory. He just wanted the Lord. What do you do when you get there? What needs to happen when you realize you put the nail? David says, then you ask for his presence. And then you kneel, you bow the knee, and you ask him 
to do three things. David cries out in Psalm 51, the psalm of confession. The psalm that he wrote when he was finally humiliated and realized he was filthy rags. He cries out, Lord, purge me with hyssop. Purge is used frequently in the Old Testament. But if I've done my research right, this verb in this form appears in only one place. Right here. Psalm 51. And it means to cause to lose something. To cause to lose something. David is saying, Lord, cause me to lose my guilt, my shame, my sin. Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop. Green plant. The man has leprosy. He's been banned. He's been placed outside the community. He's lived in the wilderness without friends, without family, unable to worship with the people of God, unable to hear the word being proclaimed, unable to hear the choir singing in a wilderness, a lonely, unclean man. And one day, somehow, miraculously, the leprosy is gone. And now he comes to the priest. And he brings two birds to the priest. The priest takes the first one, wrings its neck, spills its blood, dips the hyssop in the blood of the bird, and sprinkles it over the former leper. He purges him. He proclaims, you are clean. Your sin has been caused to be removed. The bird has died in your place. And then he takes the second bird. He lifts it skyward. And he lets the bird fly free. Because the leper then realizes his leprosy is gone. His sin is gone. He is free as a bird. A new day. A new life. Now, do you think that that former leper, when he was pronounced clean, free of his guilt and shame, do you think he sat there looking serious like you do? He instantly became a charismatic Presbyterian. <laughs> he leapt. He cried. He praised. He yelled. He danced. He had been purged from sin and shame, from guilt and condemnation. Now he can cry out, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because when you've been purged, then you've been given freedom to praise him with lip and mind and heart and song. We're a little too stiff as Presbyterians. I don't know if you were singing loud enough with Phil this morning. That was great music. And finally, you must ask the Lord for one more thing. And I'm sorry, but I'm not sure that you're here. You may know that you've been purged, and you may know that you have reason to praise but I'm not sure that you've got the third part. David says you need purpose. What is that purpose? He says, Lord, when you purge me, 
and cause me to praise, then I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. Transgressors, the Hebrew word means to, to break a treaty, to breach a relationship. Do you think David understands that? Do you think that was a happenstance choice? Or was he deliberate? His relationship with his wife? His relationship with that other woman? His relationship with his commander that he ordered to arrange the death of Uriah? His relationship with Uriah, who for so many years had protected him from every enemy? Do you think David understood breaching, breaking treaties and relationships? Well, of course he did. And now I said, Lord, I see a new thing. I see that men and women are transgressors. That they break the law, that they trample it in the dust. It's taken me many years to really get hold of that, Lord. But now I'm going to go. And I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. And Lord, something wonderful is going to happen. Sinners are going to return to you. Now, Pastor Ryan can identify with the word that's used here for sinners. Because the word that's used here is a word used in archery. And I discovered recently that Pastor Ryan was an archery champion. He led his team to the state championship. Came in third. And one morning recently, I, I went to visit him and he had shot a deer with his compound bow and arrow. Can you believe that? Incredible. I mean, those arrows fly across two football fields in less than three seconds. The deer had no chance. But on this day, Pastor Ryan picks up his compound bow and arrow, and he does not hit the target. He misses the target. That's what a sinner is. Sinners are those who miss the target of love for God. They miss the target of living and walking and thinking in his presence and his fellowship. But David says, you know what? I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. And when I do that to transgressors, those sinners who are missing that mark are going to realize that. And then they're going to kneel in your presence. I'm not sure that you're there. I'm not sure that you've got that purpose. I'm afraid you're a nice, comfortable, middle-class Presbyterian. And you like calmness in your life. And you don't want to speak to your neighbor. And you don't want to speak to that associate in your office. Because you haven't yet felt the depth of purging. You haven't yet felt the freedom of praising. And until you do, you will not know the power of his purpose in your life. The child was born in June 22, 1943. Good parents, good family. And in those days, the streets of D.C. were comparatively safe for kids to roam and play. 
as a teenager, he will tell you that he, he loved sports. He grew to be six foot four, tall, strong, athletic, and handsome. He and his friends loved cars. They dated girls, they drank beer, and they went to the beach as often as they could. He was fortunate. His parents sent him to St. Albans School. St. Albans School is a prestigious private college prep. He graduated from there. He went to University of Virginia, got a degree in English, had no idea what on earth to do or what to be. And somehow one day he stumbled into a newsroom. And as he watched that action in reporters, he thought, wow, I want this excitement. And so for the next 40 years, Alexander Britton would pursue a career in news. He would be a reporter. At one point, he would become the editor of a TV show. At one point, he would have his own TV political show. Today, he's a senior political analyst for one of the large TV companies. It looks like success is written across the life of Alexander Britton. But there were two huge earthquakes that hit his emotional life, that shook him up. When he graduated from college, not long afterwards, he quickly fell in love. And then he quickly fell out of love. The relationship disintegrated and dissolved in divorce. He was devastated, shell-shocked, to his very core. And he stayed under that, that grip of indecision, uncertainty, and fear for years. Even though he found a new love, even though he found a woman whom he loved and who loved him, a woman who, who gave him three children, it took him years before he was able to say, will you marry me? And then it seemed like ultimate peace had arrived. It seemed like he could relax and enjoy his fame and his wealth and his family. Until the phone call came. February of 1998. Brett Hume, Alexander Britton, Brett Hume is sitting in his newsroom desk. The phone rings. That phone call will forever change Brit Hume. He picked it up, and the voice in the other said, Brit, I've got bad news. Sandy, your 26-year-old son, is dead. Last night, Sandy, successful reporter, about to enter the TV world, Sandy, committed suicide. Sandy was his firstborn. Sandy was named Alexander Britton Sandy Hume, his father's pride and joy. Hume was paralyzed emotionally. He said it felt like an amputation 
Something in me had been amputated that will never go back and never be there again. He said, I felt, I felt darkness descending and crowding my heart. A darkness that was so deep. All I could do was feel pain and grief. And he began to think of his childhood. He remembered the, the days when his parents had taken him to the Episcopal Church. And he began to wonder, is there a God? Can this God do anything for my darkness, for my pain? And he says he began to feel that one day that phone was going to ring and a voice in the other room was going to say, Brit, this is God. I'm here to explain what happened and why. Well, the phone never rang. But God did call. Britt had a friend that had been quietly witnessing to him, another news guy. He introduced him to an ex-football player who didn't play for a prestigious prep school and high school level, but he played for a famous professional football team called the University of Alabama. Under Bear Bryant. And he became a minister. And Pastor Leachman was introduced to Brit. Their football backgrounds immediately meshed. Immediately he had Brit's attention and very soon his trust. And before long, Brit had gathered together a bunch of newsmen, would you believe, for a Bible study. Then they started to meet in his home as couples every week. And they still do. Because in the midst of his pain and grief and darkness, for the first time he understood it's not religion, it's not Episcopal, it's not Presbyterian, it's not Catholic. It is the hammerhead of Brit Hume's sins that drove that nail. And yes, God is calling. And Brit, it's time to kneel. Are you there? Let's pray. Father, we... We glory and we praise in being saved from sin, knowing forgiveness, knowing mercy. And yet, Lord, we, we may not yet understand how deep that purging must be. We may not yet understand the freedom of that bird flying away in that new day and new life. It may be like Brit Hume, nominal Christians. So, Father, I pray you would come. Touch hearts, heads, lives. Call us into, into closer fellowship and friendship with you. Because Jesus died as the heart pants for the water brooks. Amen.